Richard Foreman and Wilfred Leach sat down with moderator James Furlong for an interview in June of 1985. I'm Hope Clark, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. Good afternoon, I'm Jim Furlong, and I'd like to welcome you on behalf of SSDC to a talk with Wilfred Leach and Richard Foreman, two directors who design. Uh, we'll have a little under an hour of questions, and then you can ask questions. But if you feel compelled while we're talking to ask something, please raise your hand and speak up. I, most directors here uh, would, I think, agree that design is a crucial element in any good production. But there are only a handful of directors that I can think of who have actually designed and sometimes get design credit for their work. Uh, Robert Wilson comes to mind, Franco Zeffirelli, Alwyn Nicolai, a choreographer, and these two men. And so I thought it would be interesting to kind of explore what it's like to wear both hats and how one task influences the other. By way of starting, I wanted to ask both of you if, when you started out as directors, design was as important to you as it has become over the years. Did you always have a strong sense of design? For, for me? Yes. yes. Well, when I uh, first started, when I went to school, uh, where I went to school, there wasn't any real separation between uh, into compartments. In other words, in order to get a play on, you had to also build a set. And uh, so actually, my background uh, is not from a highly compartmentalized training, but one where we just built the sets and we acted in them and we did the productions. And so people would say, I know you're directing a play because you have a screwdriver in your hand. And uh, that, that's really how it has to do with background. I mean, I've always sort of handmade the productions until recent years uh, because that's, it was easier to do that than beg people to do it. Did you study design formally, drafting? Yes, originally. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, originally, I did. I, I, when, when I was in school, uh, I, I, when I first started, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation gave money to a number of famous people to tour around and speak. And there was a seminar by a man who was a very elderly dean of American designers at the time, Robert Edmund Jones. And in the school that I went to, nobody was interested in Robert Edmund Jones. The seminar consisted of two of us uh, for t three weeks. And it greatly influenced my, uh, it greatly influenced me uh, because I had, I had only seen one play in my life. Uh, and uh, that was a school play. So it was from having only seen one play, a school play, and then Robert Edmund Jones and he was very sort of inspirational. Uh, it was like a revivalist, a minister or something, you know. So uh, that's uh, that's really was a big influence uh, 
at a certain time in my life. Why weren't people interested in Robert Edmund Jones? Well, they weren't very interested in design. Everybody wanted to be an actor, Ah. you know, and uh, I didn't want to be an actor, so, you know, so I went. Well, that was at Wayman Mary in Virginia. Uh, But it was, you know, it was uh, just a regular theater department in which uh, mainly everybody worked on any, you know, did everything. What about you, Richard? Yeah, actually, uh, I started out as a designer, in a sense, because when I was a a very little kid in kindergarten, I was the kind of shy kid that, um, you know, the tough kids used to twist my arm and make me do their drawings for them for art class. And that's how I came to terms with them. And then around the age, when I was in junior high school in Westchester, I started designing scenery for uh, both high school plays and local theater groups. And uh, even getting, I think, you know, I've gotten certainly bad reviews in my life, but my, the review I'm proudest of is when I did a surrealistic setting for sort of a, a boulevard comedy called Strange Bedfellows back in the 50s. I was in junior high school. And the critic for the local paper started out, cast and audience suffered alike last night from a set designed by Richard Foreman. But I, uh, was, I was always interested in designing. I thought I'd be a designer through high school. I went to college and uh, started acting, sort of by chance. And really, I became a director only as a last stage, because I became a playwright. Some of my friends were writing plays. I thought, well, I could do that and control more of the production than I can if I'm just a designer and an actor. So I started writing plays. And then my plays were so screwy that nobody would do them. So I finally decided, well, I've got to direct it myself. So designing uh, was really at the center of my introduction to theater. Now, was there a point as your careers progressed and you worked in many different locales where the design uh, skills you needed uh, that one needed to produce a set for a certain space were too great that you had to bring in other people. Uh, your technical skills, your drafting skills were. Well, uh, you know, as Will said, I also began making my own shows uh, and really desiring to do everything myself and really desiring to have it have the awkwardness of my own particular efforts to build things and paint things and so forth. Now, obviously, you know, the first large show that I ever directed. Uh, I did not design, though I worked very closely with a designer. That was uh, Three Penny Opera, Doug Schmidt design. That was really the first show I ever directed that I hadn't written myself. Uh, and at that point, it was clear to me that you know, I worked so closely with Doug, that, and I knew that I wanted really to design my own shows, and sure, it was obvious I'd need a, a technical uh, person who could draw blueprints so people could build them, and that happens to this day. I'm Mm. always now working with an associate who will essentially take my model, because I do make models, sloppy models, will take my model and draw it. Was it difficult, though, when you started to work with someone like Doug Schmidt or Sally Jacobs? Because you you probably have very clear ideas when you plan a production. You know, it it wasn't difficult with Doug. It might have been difficult for him. I was so, as I say, it was the first big show I'd ever done in my life, so I was a little naive. And probably, I mean, I'm very friendly with Doug, but as I look back on it now, you know, maybe uh, he might have been surprised. This little kid came in and said, no, this should be purple, and this should go this way, and this should go this way. Working with Sally, I developed more guilt 
and I always let um, Sally do more and make more suggestions. I have concluded that for better or for worse, it doesn't serve me. I mean, the only way that I can think about starting to direct a play is to sit there and physically imagine you know, what kind of setting, what kind of world it's going to inhabit. So I think it's unlikely that I would be, unless really pressed to it for practical reasons, unlikely that I would work with another scenic designer who's going to design my scenery, except in a case such as a show we're doing for the next Wave series in Brooklyn next year, where the scenery is done by its young American painter, David Sally. And in that case, uh, David designs the scenery, and I have no idea what he's going to give me, and I couldn't, couldn't care less, because the aesthetic challenge to me is to get scenery for that play that is as far from anything that I could imagine as could be, and then I have the task of trying to figure out how do I make the play exist in terms of this visual. Why, why has that... Yeah. As a matter of the play has already been done. We did it in uh, Holland last year. But it was a very stimulating experience. And I, to me, from now on, I would prefer either to work that way and just be surprised and have to deal with the set I'm given, or, as would happen most of the time, make my own set. Do you just decide you want that kind of challenge and that's how it happens? Yeah, I thought I was getting maybe a little set in my ways and I needed a little more trouble. Uh -huh. So, um, and it was trouble. I mean, he gave me certain things that were tremendous and certain other things that were very difficult. He's not a scenic designer, he's a painter. But I found it very exhilarating. Uh -huh. Is that like, I don't know quite how to put this, something other than realistic. I don't want to give it a label like surrealistic, but something other than realistic. Very. So yes. whatever world he gives you, you then will jump out from there. Yes, in other words, oh sure, because for instance, the play, one act takes place um, in uh, Iran, contemporary Iran. And the first set is um, eight large stalks of ears of corn that roll around the stage. And then there's a basketball court. And then there's a big picture of an art collector, Robert Skull, having dinner with his family. Those are the priests. Now, the set of the play has nothing to do with any of that, right? So, yeah. <laughs> and then I assume this is totally different from the way you did it last time. No, he did it. No, you see, he did it. It's a production that we are sort of importing, redoing a little bit. What about you, Will? Do you work with other designers now? I have, yes. I, I do right now. Uh, uh, but largely, by the time I know... Well, it has a lot to do with how I think about a play. I usually uh, work up to some moment in the play and uh, build the play around certain moments, which are very clear to me. They're like the structure points. And then I don't know how I'm going to get from structure point to structure point, but in, by the time I've conceived of the play structurally in my head, so it's like a, a bowl or something that contains the production. And I like a great deal of freedom for the performers. So certain things have to be very solid and very steady for that to work. So by the time I've sort of figured out those events or those moments, uh, I more or less know what the set is. And uh, so, it has to be a certain, in a, disposed in a certain way for that to work. So at that point, it's much easier to do it. But what I've found since working a great deal is that, uh, I mean, it's a time problem that when I'm rehearsing, you can't really be in the shop. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, when you're dealing with union shops, uh, it's not a question of the drawings or any of those things. Uh, you know, uh, that's you know that's learnable. Uh, it's a question of you have to be in the shop uh, if it's going to look like what you what you want, what you've drawn. So uh, right now, I find it essential to work with somebody uh, that I've worked with for what now eight years. I've always worked with the same Bob Shaw. Bob Shaw, yeah, uh, because he uh, we communicate without any uh, effort. And he also knows the way in which I work. You know, that basically, uh, I have a very specific approach to the work that I'm doing. And uh, once that's determined, uh, the set is there. But Will, when you say you have the set, do you, do you make sketches for him? or do you? Oh, yeah, usually. I mean, sometimes yes, sometimes no. I, I always do the floor plan, basically, because uh, I have to. Uh, it depends. Uh, a few years ago, I did everything. Right now, I can more or less say, well, it's going to be this, that, and the other. And at this point, this has to open up because of that. And we talk about like story. I'm very interested in story pieces. Uh, um, and uh, so it's how to tell the story, really, basically. And then uh, the style really derives from, from the language of the work, as it were. And once that's sort of discussed, uh, the set is quite clear to, to, to both of us. I mean, it's clear to me. And since we've worked together so long, I am then able to read it. But, but uh, dealing with shops uh, is uh, a full-time occupation. Mm -hmm. Do you deal with shops? No. I mean, not too much. I, it, yeah. You know, I've worked the last couple of years with uh, Nancy Winters, before that with different people. Uh, I did two shows with Heidi. But uh, usually they would, I mean, I would go to the shop maybe three times in the course of the whole thing to see that it seems to be looking like I imagine to look, but not more. Well, that's different. I mean, if you're dealing, if I'm working at the Shakespeare Festival, yeah, every morning I'll go yeah. look and see what they're doing. But you're doing it on such a uh, what about something that you conceive of on paper and it seems quite good and then when you get the actual scenic element it doesn't quite do what you thought it would? Does that ever happen to you? Yes, it's like casting somebody in a role and they don't quite do what you thought they were going to do. But that becomes interesting. I mean, I, I am always finding it doesn't look the way I thought it was going to look. But then, since it looks the way it's going to look, it's like saying that actor is that way. And then the problem or the interesting part comes then, since, you know, it's like playing baseball. You don't say, I want those players to play it the way I want to play it, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, that's the interesting part to me, then trying to make it all come together. Yeah. Uh, uh, but as I say, since certain things are quite uh, strongly... Uh, plan for, those don't fail. Uh -huh. I mean, I can always count on that. Yeah. Somehow, you know, well, somehow unconsciously, I think you know that, for instance, if I'm working in a situation, it sometimes happens at the public theater, where the set will be set up way in advance. Somehow, I don't know on what level you know, but um, the final set has got an awful lot of changes and decoration that 
if you hadn't had the time, it would have been awful, but you must have known unconsciously you were going to have the time. And if you're working in the Delacorte and you have uh, a week or you know less and the set gets set up, somehow, I don't, it hasn't caused any problem. It has looked sort of like I thought it would look. I don't uh -huh. know. You just sub subconsciously. Yeah, now, for instance, yeah. I'm doing a play downtown now with the Worcester Group, and that set was built and set up first day of rehearsal. And for eight weeks, we've been working in that set. But for eight weeks, I was going in there every morning and sticking other things on the wall and repainting this and changing that. Of course, that's the ideal way to work, but paradise does not exist too often on the planet. Hello, so. Houston Street. <laughs> I think if it doesn't look the way you want it to look, it becomes the way you want it to look. Uh, uh -huh. Because, you know, it's there and... So it doesn't happen that you get things and you say, chuck it. No. I've never done it. I know people that throw out scenery all over the place. No, I've never done that. I've never felt any need to. But I've never fired an actor either, so. Uh, when you're conceptualizing, as you go along and you think about the design, does budget enter into it step by step, or do you get the grand scheme on paper and then say, okay, how much is this going to cost and that going to cost? Well, for me, it's budget from the first day. I like to know. Yeah. I mean, I'm so used to working for $100 or $50 uh, that, uh, you know, when somebody says it's over $100, I'm impressed right off. <laughs> and uh, so budget doesn't bother me, but I like to know how much it is. And uh, uh, so that uh, I do know what it costs now. You know, I've dealt with enough shops and things that I do know, I can pretty well guess what it's going to be. Uh -huh. uh, Bob is, uh, can get it within uh, $100. I can get it within $1,000, <laughs> uh, the actual cost. Uh -huh. Depends on which shop and so forth. <coughs> How about you? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you have a vague an idea, and I always tend to be worried. I don't like the notion of spending huge amounts of money. Uh, I mean, you know, things are very expensive, and sometimes you end up spending a lot of money. But I, if anything, when I start designing something, I by myself say, oh, that's going to cost so much money, that's not, uh, it's not worth it. I mean, it's just, we can never afford that without really knowing, perhaps, as specifically as well exactly what things are going to cost, because I don't deal with the shops that much. But um, cheaper is generally better. I think the most. I, I think the, uh, it's very important to emphasize what Will uh, said a minute ago. This notion that the set, and it is true, any set when you first see it on stage, it's true. It doesn't look right. It looks because it looks different, and it defies your expectations slightly. And then you, um, you know, half of making uh, plays, I think, is having the patience to let it. You know, let the cosmos slowly change it, and, let the cos and it changes physical things too. Plus the fact that anything I think in the theater can be saved with light. <laughs> any, you, you give me enough time to light the show right, I think I can make any play an aesthetically uh, correct high event. So now, a lot, what about lighting? You you lit all your stuff down on Broom Street. Now, do you still uh, do the, or do you? have a lighting designer problem. Well, no, I generally work, and not when I'm working like with the Worcester Group now, no lighting designer, but if I work in a public theater or in a professional situation like that, yeah. I work with a lighting designer, and basically what the lighting designer does for me is 
you know, provides me with the lights in the audience's eyes that I want. And then gives me a, a light uh, plot, but I do write the cues uh-huh. with the lighting device sitting there and offering. I mean, I've worked with Pat Collins now for many years, and uh-huh. if uh, she often can see what I'm trying to get at and can say, Richard, you ain't going to do it that way, do it this way. But I do, it, to me, uh, writing the light plot is a major part of my work. And it's interesting because I don't know how Will works, but I understand that often that's not so much the case in America, whereas in Europe it's just assumed, essentially, that the director is going to write all the cues. Cues, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I started doing lighting, I mean, because, again, it was, it was easier to get out the step ladder than to ask somebody else to come and do it. But uh, nowadays I work either with Jennifer Tipton or Paul Gallo, and at a certain point um, I find that with people that I've worked with a long time, we don't need to communicate very much. I mean, I just say, this is going to happen here, and that's going to happen there, and this should be that. And that conversation's over in maybe 10 minutes. And then we see each other on the first preview, and uh, they say, oh, that was <laughs> glad to meet you. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the lighting's been done. We communicate really by uh, grunts and yeah. things like that. Uh, I like that a great deal. Uh, I mean, I like uh, uh, working with people that I've worked with, uh, and I tend to work with people I've worked with. So uh, uh, it's I find lighting the easiest part because I don't have to worry too much about it. Uh-huh. Uh, you got into something before about conceptualizing design and those key moments that right. you then fill in. Uh, what about you? Is How do you go about the way I go about directing a play, and I'm sure it probably shows, both those people who like what I do and those people who hate what I do, I, uh, for months, I, if, there's, if there are months, if I know there are months before I'm going to do the show, I start making, doodling all kinds of rough ideas for a set, and I start making models. And it is not unusual for me to make 12 different models for any show that I do. I mean, I remember uh, I was working on The Golem for maybe two months, and I really made 12 different models of the most wildly differing sorts, not saying, oh, I'm going to make 12 models because then I'll know what I want. But, I mean, each one I was sure, ah, oh, that's it. And then after it sits there on the table for two days, I wake up the next morning and I look and I say, oh, that looks horrible. Not it. No, that's not it. And I really work pretty blindly. That's why it's so hard for me to work with designers, especially with designers I don't know, because how... You know, to, to communicate why, to communicate to myself why this model, all of a sudden, after three days, just doesn't work for me. Uh, I, I don't know how to talk. You know, the terms are always so bizarre. If I'm working with a designer and I say, well, I want sort of very uh, heavy Baroque kind of, you know, twists all through here. I mean, I mean aside from the physical necessities of the way it plays on every stage, you end up discovering that all kinds of words just mean totally different things on some unconscious level to you, yeah. to your designer. But and that's, I just would say that I, it's, it's very problematic for me because, for instance, I, I respect Sally Jacobs tremendously. We're very friendly, and I think Sally, for instance, did a very good set for uh, three acts of recognition, a play that we did at Public Theater a couple of years ago by Walter Strauss. After the play had been running, I realized that the set I originally 
sort of wanted, that I would have done by myself, um, would have worked better for me. And it may not have been as beautiful, you know, maybe people would or would not have liked the production better, but uh, it seems it's very problematic for me to imagine not proceeding, letting the unconscious be your guide in, in, in visual terms. Mm -hmm. What about spaces? Uh, if Are there any spaces that you prefer over others? Uh, I'm sure there are. And wh I mean, why? What do you like about some spaces and deplore about others? I, I don't really have that feeling. It's, it's, again, like the budget. It's what you've got. You know? uh -huh. So whatever you have is what you have. And then the, it just becomes interesting to say, well, that's what I've got. I've got a pipe there, and I've got that there. And uh, so, no, I, I don't really have any... Uh, uh -huh. So the size of the house, if it's an enormous house, no, it doesn't bother you? No, no. I, I like the... Any, anyway, uh -huh. fun. Yeah. Uh, you certainly becomes, have done it. That just be, yeah, that just becomes part of the part of the part of the game. Part of the that's you know like the cats. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's a given, and and then it becomes how to make it all go together. Yeah. Now I've never had any problem spaces. I've worked in all even the uh, this is big for some of my The Minskov. Oh, the sound is terrible in the Minskov, but. Uh, and worse in the Euros, but uh, no, I mean, it's it's a little like the inside of a refrigerator or something, but it's, uh, uh, it, uh, you know, yeah. it has the basic thing you need, the seats. Platform. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, no, I've no I, I don't have any feeling about that. What about you? I hate to be so placid and uh, agree with so many things Will is saying because I like, I like fights, I like disagreements. But sure, I mean, any space, the challenge, the delight of art is working within the limitation of whatever, you know, if you're going to write a sonnet, you don't say, gee, this make a good sonnet if only a sonnet had 15 lines. You know, it is taking this space and trying to evoke something in this space. And again, the real problem is always the sound. Sound can be often in a lot of spaces. The only thing I find problematic about spaces, sometimes, in Europe, uh, I have to tour a lot, and having a show that is built for one particular kind of space, and then having to put it into another space, that makes me feel very bad. <laughs> and yeah. I think it usually works horribly. But, uh, well, what about, for instance, moving Three Penny from the Beaumont to the Delacorte? Was that problematic? No, no, we sort of just rebuilt. I mean, I, li I happen to like it better in the park, as a matter of fact. But... Uh, that could have been problematic, but it wasn't. Mm -hmm. But moving uh, a show, I find, because yeah. I really do. Uh, I make models, and I make models. First, I build myself the room or the theater that the model is going to be placed mm -hmm. in. And I try to to use the room as a sounding board, as a reverberation uh, machine in which the play is set. And now, when you've moved stuff, like Pirates, for instance, did you redesign? Did you a, a lot of the scenery? Or no, uh, because uh, with that one, it was very only slightly redesigned, and it had largely to do with uh, we were moving on very little money. Uh, so it wasn't practical, really, to totally reconceive it. Uh, but I have done things from time to time. I mean, I've done a lot of this European touring, too, you know, where you you don't know if you're going to be in a gymnasium or a, 
Baroque opera house. Uh, and after a while, I, you know, I, I think now most of the sets I do are designed from the center out. In other words, it doesn't matter what the frame is, and it doesn't matter what the, what the, uh, how much, it's adjustable because it, it starts in the middle. And I think all these years of touring Europe got me into a form of scenery which always starts in the middle, and uh, just makes no reference to what's around it. Uh, more or less. You know, I mean, so then you can eliminate Stylistically, yeah, I tend to put up a platform and work out from the platform. Because I found that, you know, if you go into these giant theaters, uh, at least I could confine the working, the working space or so forth. And in the Delacorte, I always put up a platform, largely because out there I've done Shakespeare, and Shakespeare really, to me, doesn't work in a big space. And so I have to take this giant space and make it seem like it's small. And then periodically throw in scenes like the battles in Henry V, which aren't in Henry V, are just put in to, because you're outdoors and you have to. Or, you know, if you don't do a battle, people aren't going to like it. So uh, it's a matter of constantly coming back to something that's the right size for those plays and then opening it up in order to do some spectacle and then closing it back down so you can do the play. That's just the way I think. So I tend to put always determine the size of the space, so to speak, that the play requires, that feels right to me. You know, some plays are this size and some plays are bigger size. And once I sort of know the size, that's how big the working area is, mm -hmm. and try to put the walls right on that size. Uh, so uh, I tend always, as I say, to work on a platform and to work out from the middle. And it has to do with all those years of having to fit into anything. And, and, and you know, you, you get an hour to set up and you're on. Um, so uh, I'm perverse enough to know that I'm uh, screwing myself often, but I can't work that way. <laughs> and I can actually only work always from the frame inward, from uh -huh. the periphery inward. And... Uh, it causes certain problems uh, when things are touring. I mean, I, obviously, I try not to be stupid, and I try to imagine the problems in various places you're going to have to tour. But I'm afraid that um, I guess there's a kind of arrogance that I've been allowed myself to indulge in, where uh, I've always been concerned with trying to make the thing right for each space and when we were dealing, we talked about this just before the panel began, when you're dealing with a space which you find difficult, and I found, now I'm remembering, I mean, I found the Beaumont space difficult when we were doing the Three Penny, because I was so, perhaps because I was so inexperienced uh, in dealing with that kind of theater at the time that we did it. But I resolved that I was going to do the show for the center section of the house, I was going to do the show for the critics, and the people who sat on the side might not have as good a aesthetic experiences the people sitting in the center and I made no secret to anybody that that's what was happening uh, I think it's changed some uh, I mean even working in the Delacroix for instance last summer when we did the Golem um, I do always try to in the Delacroix deal with its size and try to, especially you know Yiddish theater is supposed to be this closed in uh, kind of world that's how you imagine it so one is always trying to deal with the vastness of that theater but I must admit I think that practically everybody had a good view, but I had a little fight with the technical department of the Shakespeare Festival because each side wall, in order to make the set really look right, 
if you were sitting in the last 10 seats on either side of the theater, you could not quite see, you know, there were one or two positions where people might tend to get invisible. Now, the play was staged, so that I don't think it interfered that much, but I, I must admit that I am designing and directing the plays essentially from where I'm sitting and directing. And I always tell myself, oh, yeah, you have to move around and see, but I don't. You know? And I think there are probably very few directors who sit yeah. in the balcony to look what their play looks like. And you sit in the Frank Rich seat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hasn't done me much good, but <laughs> that's right. Uh, now, at that instance with Three Penny, when you said, I'm going to do it this way, did you say you let everyone know that? You let your producer know that? Yeah. And there weren't objections or there weren't? I think one of the realities of the Delcourt is you find out that you have to make all sorts of compromises. Otherwise, everything would be so far upstage that you'd be out over the lake. Uh, it's very deceptive theater, really, the way the sides come around. That uh, Unless you build up in certain ways and, and have people down... In other words, if you want to talk to somebody, you want to look at them like this... They've either got to be down below you and you've got to be way up high so everybody can see the face of the actor, or you're blocking. There's no position on that stage short of out over the lake in which uh, somebody isn't blocking the person speaking or the person seeing. It's like a thrust test. So the only thing you can do is include all sorts of stairs and things and get the people talking up and the people listening down. And you can, you've got a reasonable chance of, of everybody seeing what you want to see. But uh, it, it's not, uh, you have to compromise. I mean, you know, you, you, you know that, you know, you sort of trade off, okay, we're going to take care of this section now, we're going to take care of that section now. Mm -hmm. But all the rules of lining up the bombs and things don't work in the Delacorte because it just, it, it isn't, the shapes aren't such that you can really uh, do that. What do you mean the rules of? Well, you know, an arena stage or, or any theater with bombs, if yeah. you can line up the actors straight with most bombs, uh, everybody can see oh, because see. there are no seats in the bombs. Uh -huh. But because of the way that rake is there and so forth, you, you, you really don't have that uh, that option. So you trade off. You say, this section is for the, this part, this scene will be for those people, and this scene for those people. It's for those. I mean, that's the only choice you have. Or you play everything way upstage. Mm -hmm. uh, in recent years, I've put, a, put in extra seats in the front in order to make that... that to bridge, uh, to bridge out to a further upstage position. Also, the really experienced actors tend to want to go way upstage, you know, because they know if they get far enough back, everybody can see them. So you've got a cast that's constantly edging back and back and back. And so finally, I decided, well, the thing to do is do the play back there, because uh, they're going to go there anyhow. Uh, and uh, it works better. In general, I think Shakespeare works better on a, uh, in a fairly tight space. Uh -huh. Now, but you've done, have you done all of your Shakespeare in the park? Or? I've done, uh, no, I've done a lot of Shakespeare. I think this is my 12th or 13th production in the park coming up. Uh -huh. But I, I've done other than Shakespeare, I think, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, uh, you've done Shakespeare in other spaces more suited to the way you like it? Yeah. Uh, it's not a question of being more suited. No, I love the park because you have that audience, first of all. And it's a very intimate theater despite its uh, size. I mean, for, for, 
2,000 seat house, it's extraordinary how intimate it is. Uh, it just, uh, it, it has those, uh, I, I think it's what Richard's saying, you, you have to, you can't please every seat all the time. And once you accept that, uh, you know, you do the best you can. Yeah. I think the, the Delacroix is a fine theater. I love working with Delacroix. The only thing I don't like about it is that the problems with lighting. It's very difficult. Your best thing is you, you tend to put up towers. But it has a great audience. You see, it depends on what, it, for me, the design is, is, is just like designing the wrapper. You know, it's not the substance of it at all. And uh, it, it, I like a, a sort of expectant set. Uh, uh, it's like uh, creating a decorations for a party or something, you know. But until the people are there or, they, or, or whatever, there's no party. So to get an expectant set, uh, one which is incomplete, is what I'm working for. And... Uh, so it doesn't, um, beyond this sort of beginning where it sort of helps define certain moments and it means the actors can be up or down or they can be seen and so forth, that's really my interest in the set. Uh, uh, because that's not where my focus is. Yeah. But yet your sets have been very clever. It's very visual, yeah. I, but that's, again, that, that's all part of the thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, what about lighting? I wanted to ask you about that. Do you just for the first half hour in the Delacorte do a general wash and not worry about cues? No, because as time goes on, if you're doing the second show, you know, by the time you're finished, there's going to the be sun has you'll see the light. So yeah. no, you light the show. As if, yeah, I mean, you try to balance the two possibilities. But but you do know what time it goes down. Like in the park, I know exactly what time the lights are going to go down, and the production is planned really for certain things to occur as the night comes on, uh, because I can predict it. So certain scenes are staged in certain ways, because I know at this moment, I've been out there so much, the sun is going to go right across there, and that's going to happen, and then at this point, that's going to happen, and that point, that's going to happen. And once you've done a certain number, you know that that's a, a given, you know, and you have control over it. Uh, and in the month you're playing there, the light changes uh, roughly a minute a, a day. Uh, the first show, it gets dark about between 8.35 and 8.40. The second show, which I'm doing, thank God, uh, you can count on it being dark by 8.15. Uh, and that helps. I mean, you know, you, you it's terrible. The first show I did, I didn't know that it, you know, was going to be bright until 8.40. Mm -hmm. And I had done all these things for these lights, and they did Where were they? I hate the, uh, man, I, the only thing I do hate about the light board, I do hate starting the show in daylight, and I've the, the things that I've done there, I have made, I have racked my brains always to try and figure out ways to deal with that unfiltered overall daylight and try to make a kind of focus. I would say that, you know, uh, to me, I think the scenery is very different from Will. To me, the scenery is very crucial element. Because to me, the scenery is, as I, as I said earlier, a kind of resonating board, like you have a violin. And oh, the actors are the strings, and you're playing the violin. But the set, uh, the whole, all of the visual aspects of the show are absolutely, for me, a machine to cause the actor's performance to resonate and to grow larger and to have, you know, those kinds of bubbles that uh, wouldn't have without the set, without the whole visual aspect. 
Lou, did you have a question? Yeah, I just wanted to ask uh, Mr. Lee, you said that uh, if you designed from the center out, I was wondering that if you begin with the dimension to the set, then I suppose it's not too difficult to transfer that minimal adjustment to either the trust stage or one that's exactly what I mean. It all that I began to yeah. think that way um, because of touring, mm-hmm. and uh, because you had to go into every kind of theater and set up very quickly, it became easier to take the stage, as it were, and to set up in the area. And then it also, uh, over the years, I began to feel that a play had a size, quite a, a literal physical size, and uh, if I can determine that, mm-hmm. it helps it from becoming diffused and, and so forth. Yeah, right. right. Exactly. And uh, mm-hmm. Exactly. So for me, I, when I'm working on the set, it's really to create a, a sort of circumstance or a, say, party decorations and poses, I can think, to create a sort of a, a, a container uh, so that... Uh, it isn't necessary to tell people do this and do that. I, I'm not a you do this, you do that sort of director. I, I'm sort of we're going in that direction, uh, and uh, so that it um, uh, w- what we do together is to to find out how to do it. But of course, when you create a certain space and those things, you can pretty well uh, determine what the options are, what the choices are. Because again, it's like you say, well, we're going to play baseball. But for me, the set is the rules of baseball. The rules are this is here and that's there and that's there and that's there and that's there. And by the time I've created those rules, we're all playing the same game, as it were. That's the ratio of the base set, doesn't it? Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, So the set to me is setting up the rules for that particular production, really. Well, you both have explained very well how your designing has helped the directing. <coughs> I assume opposite holds true that your directing has helped the designing. Have you uh, also found, out of your experiences, the opposite, where either your designing has gotten away of your directing, or your directing has gotten away of your designing? Uh, no, I, I can't separate them, you see, in that, in that I really don't come from a compartmentalized way of thinking. I. I to me, by the time I know what I'm going to do in the production, I might as well have done the set. Uh, or at least have, have determined those things I'm talking about now. I can't really, I, I really don't understand how people assign a set out to a designer and they do that production. I, I couldn't do that. You know, so, no, because it's all one thing to me. No, sure, the same thing. I mean, I many years ago when I started making the theater, I perversely decided I wanted to make theater the same way somebody painted a picture or, you know, an individual artist sat down, and I wanted to do everything, uh, you know. And uh, it's all part of the same impulse. It's the desire to make a total object. Any other questions? You were mentioning the size of Shakespearean productions, and I think you were talking about Henry V. Mm. You said you rather like the smaller size? Yeah. Uh, how big a theater do you think is ideal? Well, it's not a question of ideal. I mean, you know, I, I do think of the Globe stage was a certain size, you know, and I, one assumes that that was the ideal, that he did write. I mean, he wasn't man enough of these, 
of the theater that he did know what he was doing and he wrote something very specific for a specific kind of stage. Now, uh, when I first started, everybody was building little low back stages, you know, and uh, we uh, were, uh, uh, you know, you had to have the inner bob, all those things. And uh, I don't think that's the answer. I mean, I've never felt that it had to do, you had to have exactly the, uh, the Elizabethan architecture to do it. But I have tried Shakespeare in big areas, designing all over the place, I mean, fast spaces, moving people around fast spaces. And I personally didn't like the production as much as one which was roughly the size of the original stage. But then you get in the park where you have a vast area and you have expectations of spectacle. Uh, and, you know, even though uh, Henry V, he says there are going to be just a couple of people fighting, you know you can't get away with a couple of people fighting. You've got to have a whole mob of people or they're going to say, oh, wow, that's terrible, you know. Shakespeare is really a movie, only he didn't have the movie. I mean, that's the cliche, you know. And I don't believe that. So for me, the answer is yes, I have to create some spectacle. I have to have spectacle so that I can go back to the play and then have some spectacle and go back to the play. Uh, uh, and certain scenes simply, in my experience, do not work if the space is not confined. Uh, it just goes away. The scene goes away. Uh, they're quite intimate plays uh, to me, uh, and I think they work best uh, intimately performed, even in the Delacour, as intimate as I can do it. Yes? Um, just fun. I just want to throw out a do the set. I, what I was trying to say is that since my primary interest in, is as collaboration, to me it's a family uh, affair and uh, I, as I say my idea of direction is not ordering people around. It's just not the way I work. But the set to me, because it just sits there. I mean, what is the set? You know, it, it maybe moves a little bit, but it's just the set. Uh, it's just the circumstance. It's just the rules. Uh, it, to me, uh, is not a matter of eliminating a collaborator. It just means that I have set up, I have set up the, I've defined certain things so that we are free uh, beyond that, and I can pretty well leave people quite free uh, and cause things to occur if I want them to occur, but I tend to, I tend to be a very good audience at rehearsal. And uh, therefore, uh, the more people invent and bring in things, the more I enjoy it. I mean, I have to straighten it out and put it together and so forth. But ultimately, uh, to me, the set or working on the set is just a way of getting rid of that element and setting up certain foolproof things. That's all. Do you, uh, Did you want to address yourself well, to that? It's clear that, I mean, especially the people who hate what I do will be quick to agree that I am a director who works by ordering people around. 
telling and what to do. And um, you see, I've always had uh, very ambivalent feelings about the theater. And um, I, in general, don't like the theater too much. I don't even know if I'd like my plays if I can't, if, you know. I walked in some night and I didn't know I had directed it and there it was. But uh, to me, I've always thought of the task, you know, here we are, uh, I don't know, four billion different people on the planet. And when I go to a work of art, I'm interested in finding out what is it like to perceive the world from that position, from the center of that head? What is it like to perceive the world from the center of that head? So I've, I do believe in a very personal, almost lyrical kind of expression, which the theater is classically not the place to do that. And I must admit, I've been turned on by the absurdity of the task of trying to do that in terms of this arena, which is the theater. I think one thing that should be said, you know, both Will and I actually began, and I don't know if Will, I guess Will still doesn't do it so much, but we both began as writers. And I'm still a good 60% of the work, 70% of the work that I do is my own material. So that uh, somehow, even when I'm directing another play, I like to pretend it isn't so, but I am, in a sense, thinking as an auteur. And I think that my responsibility is to organize the total event in terms of my sensibility, for better or for worse, and offer that. That's what I have to offer. Now, I enjoy collaborate. I have never enjoyed anything as much as this experience with David Sally, the painter, Peter Gordon, the composer, Kathy Acker, a writer who gave me material in which... I said, give me whatever you want, and I'll put it together. Sort of the way Merce Cunningham and John Cage work. When they perform a premiere of one of Merce's dances, they claim that that night is the first time they ever hear John's music. Uh, I don't go quite that far yet, though it might be exciting to do so. But that kind of collaboration is also sort of the kind of collaboration that I've had for many years working with Stanley Silverman. We've done, oh, six, seven pieces together. And we try to collaborate by saying to each other, you do what you want, I'll do what I want, and then we have to figure out a way that that will live together. I felt very guilty at the beginning of my career that I did not allow the actors to bring in a lot of stuff. And I tried it, and I found invariably that maybe they're doing better stuff, but it's not part of that particular obsession that is my obsession. So I think I'm nice to my actors, but I can't collaborate too much. Let me answer first because my answer will be briefer than Will's. Because the living playwrights that I have worked with either have been in other countries, have not wanted to come to the theater, so I, I have done maybe half a dozen plays by living playwrights, but I've never had to deal with the playwright. <laughs> Except well, myself. Yeah, I've dealt with a lot of them, and uh, of course it's easier to deal with the dead ones than uh, the living ones. But uh, some of them are, are just totally uh, just wonderful. I mean, you know, it's, it's you talk and you discuss and you argue and there's no hard feeling and there's every goodwill. You're trying to go to the same place. And uh, and I have uh, in the last uh, last year I worked on a production in which not one word was changeable, uh, and, and uh, you know there was no way to deal with it. I mean, you, you discuss it and rationalize it and everything, but they just would not 
yield one, literally, would not yield one word. Um, so uh, that's all right, too, because then once you know that that's the case, it becomes, again, of saying, well, now, given that, can I make this work as well as it can work? It would be better if we can change something else. But um, uh, it, it's all, it depends on the temperament of the, of, of the person you're working with. Uh, I've never had difficulties with anybody. I mean, it's not like, you know, I've had any fights with them. They, they maybe argue, but... Do you actually collaborate then on the concept of the design? Or do you draw a line somewhere? Well, I guess I do. Uh, yeah, no, I, I always say, you got your job, I've got mine. Uh, now, you just tell me what the line is. And... Uh, then I try to figure out a way to make that go. It's the way the actors, you know, they don't, they pick up the script and they see that line, and the interesting thing is, what can I do with that line? Now, how can I get him to rewrite that line? Uh, or, uh, so, uh, but that's all part of the thing. You know, if, if uh, I haven't yet uh, experienced uh, blanking out or going, st- uh, that I couldn't think of something, you know. So, uh, I, for me, uh, it's always the idea, well, I'll get out of this somehow. Uh, but I don't know how, but I'll get out of it. Uh, so if that's a given, that's a given. And you just get out of it any way you can. I've, I've worked with many writers that uh, are, are, are Wally Shawn. I've done a couple of plays with him, and he's just wonderful to work with. But he rewrites very little. But uh, certainly, he, he's so responsive. Uh, and so generous toward the performers and so forth. You know, he's just happy that they've learned his lines, so to speak. And uh, uh, so it's a great joy to work with somebody like that. I, I won't name some I've worked with, but it's my great joy to work with. But uh, we got it done, and uh, it's good, I think. Uh, I, just, I, just, I, I should add, I, I made a mistake. There's one living playwright that I worked with who was present at all rehearsals, and he was also the producer of the show. <laughs> Guess what happened? <laughs> Guess who had the power? <laughs> no, I try to get the writer to take out the stage directions. I'd say that is always a thing, because they tend to write in, you know, they breathe here and they turn and their eye closes, and they give you these elaborate things. Uh, and it's very uh, difficult under those circumstances. Once you can convince them that you know, if they mark out all the stage directions, it'll probably be a more interesting production. Uh, uh, it goes well. But that's the usual argument. I just say, take it out, take it out, take it out. You know, I don't know what they should do. How do you know? So. I was going to say that in the case of a living playwright, he, he or she may be protecting the words. In the case of a dead playwright, the audience, often is very protective of oh, what they're yes. coming to see. Oh. Like, for instance, I'm sure in opera it's even greater. Those who came to Deflator Mouse were very protective of their mm-hmm. ideas about that opera. And uh, But I guess you just have to go into it saying... Yeah, you know, actually that's a strange situation because all I know that there was a lot of report of it. I mean, there was, you know, it was a total distortion of what happened. I had that experience myself much more strongly with um, Don Juan. Uh-huh which I did here, which, uh, you know, people could like it, people could not like it, the thing that I found extraordinary. I mean, to me, Don Juan is probably, I like Moliere better than Shakespeare. I think that Don Juan is perhaps the best play ever written. 
after the Greeks. And, and uh, audiences thinking, I mean, there were, was a lot of response that I was trying to trash the play. Or I was trying to, you know, there's no play in the literature that I love more than that play. So, of course, people... Uh, but but it's know, not that well-known a play. It's not like the misanthrope. Yeah, well, I suppose. Do you think the misanthrope is well-known? I don't think people that know Moliere too well. But yeah. uh, sure, you have that problem. But that's like problems artists always have. Right. And I, I feel that, you know, Will is talking about rewriting. I haven't had the experience of working closely with contemporary authors. To me, a director that I admire very much, for instance, is Kazan. But when I look at, you know, those two versions of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, I, I think it's wrong. What, what he made what he Tennessee did. Williams yeah. do. Yeah. Right. I would never. I would hope that I, as a director, would never do that. As, as uh, Will is saying, the fun is to find out how to make the particular necessity that was working through that author work on stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, my question was about this universal uh, happiness. Um, I found that the visual aspects of the performance. <clears throat> quite uh, genial with your previous work, I, I found that the uh, performers had what seemed a much more uh, uh, manic physicality than, say, the present something like Penguin 2K. And uh, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the uh, extent to which uh, their known style was incorporated by you as a given, and, and the extent to which yeah, I don't want to take too much time on that because I'm sure most people here probably haven't seen it, so it's sort of boring for them. But I would just say that uh, it's all me. I wanted to do something. I actually, I was, I'm under the influence, which perhaps may be bad for me, of a uh, Polish director whose work in film I saw within the last couple of months for the first time in my life and was doing everything I always wanted to do. A guy by the name of Zuelski, whose film was not shown here. But uh, uh, I, uh, I've always said that I thought my work as a director was more reactionary, was more conservative than my work as a playwright. And uh, it, it was my interest in trying to do something where the performances were more manic, more physicalized than had been the case in the very controlled work that had been done in those other plays, yeah. Yes? I do. Uh, in other words, I, I uh, it's like casting, I choose the person very carefully, and if, if, if the vibrations seem right, I leave them alone. And we talk about what they bring, but I never force them. I mean, I can usually get people to do what I want to do um, if I really want them to do it without, you know, forcing it uh, by persuasion or whatever. But basically, uh, in costumes, I have no real feel for it, so I love saying what people will do uh, once they understand you know what the general drift of it is uh, 
so yes, I, I uh, like to have to say what I'm looking for and then to bring it. Yeah, it's so hard talking about these collaborations. It's like if you go out to, to dinner with someone, you know, some sometimes you go out to dinner with someone and immediately there's a kind of communication, and sometimes there isn't. Uh, when I'm doing shows downtown, I generally sort of do my own costumes by going out with the actors and shopping and being interested in seeing what they like and you know, discussing going that direction. And then with costumes, I, I must admit I also have felt uh, delirious about my abilities to know what I want in terms of costumes. And 50% of the time, uh, I have been not that happy. And I found it difficult to communicate because the words mean so many different things. 50% of the time, I've been extremely happy. Uh, but it's always the result of long conversation and, you know, many different sketches and talking about why something seems not. I think uh, it's a question of how good, uh, how much experience, uh, I'm better at it now than I used to be, put it another way, in communicating things you can't really talk about. Uh, I, I, I see... When I first started, I believed the prefaces of, say, again, let's say Shakespeare. I believed those prefaces. And then the day I discovered that all, that, that I'd gotten a doctorate for no good reason, I can never get it. Uh, because it's the wrong kind of communication to people. It, it, it's, it's the wrong way of connecting. So, uh, uh, as I say, in almost everything, including working with actors, once I uh, stopped trying to uh, to uh, to uh, let them know that I knew anything. Uh, I was much better able to direct. I find costumes much. I find myself having a situation that we were talking about with sets, much more with costumes. That when I, I must admit, very often, the first time I see the costumes on stage, I'm very upset. <laughs> And then I realize I'm foolish because actually they're quite, quite good. But the first view of the costumes is a trauma for me. No, I've had that experience. I mean, I, I think it's like all the, you know, you see the staircase and say, my God, it's too tall <laughs> or something, you know. But after a while, it seems just right. Do either of for example, have a very strong, you can see the introduction, strong sense of, say, collar or shading or trousers, or any sort of you the designer, you say, I see or names of painters. Yeah, or it could be style, it could be stylistic. Uh, yeah, I usually uh, talking about the costume. Mm -hmm. We just agree on the colors. So you're going to take care of that. And I'm going to use this if you use that, uh, so that we don't, you know, end up vanishing into the background. Uh, but it's more or less agreeing on what the palette is. Uh, and uh, also, if you've worked with a designer or a costume designer, well, you know what their palette is. You know, they, they will choose certain colors, and you can, I can sort of guess after a while what it's going to be. Uh, and then sometimes they say, well, let's trade off. I'll take those, you take those. Uh, sort of thing. But, but uh, beyond that, no. I mean, then stylistically, you know, you take anything you can. You talk about painters, you talk about whatever, whatever it is you can. Uh, but again, as I said, I think uh, it's easy to become too uh, uh, verbal about it all and theoretical and to talk very grandly for the uh, preface or for the book about something. There has to be something so you get something as close to what you're Yeah, right. Yeah. 
but uh, again, it, 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 once you get the sort of relationship right, uh, it, it's it's all done uh, for me. It's all done out of a kind of uh, common feeling. It's almost you know just we know where we're going. It's like dancing. You know, you don't say, "Well, this is you put your foot here and you put your foot there." You just do it. You really do have to try to be as vague as possible in a certain way so that uh, you don't block yeah. with, you know. But that's what I hate so much about so much teaching. Uh, you know, when I came out of Yale Drama School, I came out with the notion that you become a professional because you learn how to do things. You learn the way things are to be done. And, of course, I don't know how to do anything. <laughs> you know, you're... It's, it's only if you are able to sustain that feeling that you're starting for the first time each time that I think it's going to be any, any good. And I, because the interesting thing to me is that in terms of all elements in the theater, but especially in terms of design elements, you know, I suppose I've done like 40 productions now, I find myself making the same mistakes all the time that then have to be corrected. I remember, oh yeah, but why don't I learn? That was the same mistake I made, you know, 10 years ago. And I think that it's pretty important probably to make those same mistakes because perhaps the solution and the recovery from those mistakes each time is where something alive happens. I hope you're right. <laughs> yes? Don't you, uh, as designers and directors, think that there is a psychological use of color in what you are doing? I know as a director, I always try to work psychologically with color, not just to be able to turn to a minor designer or a costume designer and say, you know, use your own talents. Don't you think in terms of color in what is designed? Yes, but again, the best, uh, psychological is one of those dangerous things. You know, before there was psychology, they wrote better plays psychologically. Uh, uh, the, the more interesting psychology is in the plays before psychology. Uh, so I, I think you cannot, uh, yes, you, you say use your palate, but obviously if you've chosen the person carefully, they are as sensitive to what you're doing and they're as sensitive to the play as you are. You can't, if you assume the other person is some sort of dodo and you have to communicate something to them or they're not going to get it, I think you've chosen the wrong person. If you've chosen the right person, uh, you, 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 you're going the same place. And you don't have to talk that much. You don't have to talk about the psychology because that's an, a sort of intellectualization of it. It feels right. And when it comes in, it, you can sort of say why it doesn't seem right or it does seem right. But the, but the best work is the work that you've labored. I've labored over least. Uh, I, I find that it's, again, like dancing. We, when, when we can do it spontaneously, that's the good stuff. The stuff we labor, talk about, just never quite clicks. May I just extend something? Last year, for example, uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company did several uh, productions. One of them was the third, which was very exciting, as Francis, and the other was the most tremendous. Now, the Richard they did with the blacks and the greys and the, that kind of palette. When they came to Merchant of Venice, they used reds and blues and bottle green, which I found quite extraordinary. Because I found it very difficult to accept a Porsche navy or a bottle green. Uh, against this amazing 
for me the place doesn't work because of the colour. But you see, I think there's another big, big problem with the, this, with the uh, approaching the choice of the palette in that way. I found again and again, you'll sit down and you'll say, well, okay, psychologically, this, you know, this is a play about, uh, you know, midnight uh, tremors and stuff like that. Everything's in black. You've got, and then maybe with a little uh, disgusting green. And then... You're working, you're working, you're working. By accident, a white piece of paper may fall onto the desk, and you discover that, but that's much scarier. That's what, you know, there, is, there are no rules uh, for this psychological realm that you are talking about. Because even in the most abstruse uh, Freudian psychological sense, you discover that if you're really dealing on the real level, the polarity is at work. So it could be you're working and working for blood red to play about blood 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 and you find something totally different and somehow maybe because of what's surrounding it because of all kinds of other things that works freshly and genuinely and in a real fashion I agree I mean basically I think that's exactly my yeah, my view I want to ask you both uh, about your brief forays into film whether you're tempted to do it again, uh, it being primarily visual, or you, whether you enjoyed it. Yeah, I've made two films. One a realistic and one a not realistic. Uh, I love films. Uh, yes, uh, I mean, I have, uh, we're working on a couple right now. I like film and stage, too. Uh, what do you mean? I like combining film with stage. It's very hard to get people to do it because it's expensive and it's not uh, predictable. But there are great possibilities of film and stage that are virtually unexplored. Uh, but I would like to do that too. Mm -hmm. Have you been able to interest Mr. Papp in that? Oh, sure. He, I, if I wanted to do it, he would do it. But then you have to find just the right play, you know? Yeah. You can't just do it with anything. Uh, so I'm waiting for the right thing to come along, uh, which allows it. I've, I've done one production like, some years ago, which used film and things that a piece called Carmilla, which, uh, which did it in a way that I like. But uh, there are great possibilities there. Now, I do some films and plays, and I find it technically, I find it a bit... I hate all these things that you have to sit there for 12 hours while the technicians are trying to get them to work. It's just not worth it to me. And as far as making films, I was ecstatic making my film. I'd love to make another, but the kind of film that I want to make, and I have many friends, uh, especially in Europe, who make those kind of films, and the life is spending three years to raise money, if you're lucky, and then making your film. I can't live that way. So yes, I'd love to make some other films if somebody's going to knock on the door and hand me the money, but I cannot... How see, did you finance your first film? Uh, it was a miracle. I, talked, I called a friend and said, I'd like to make a movie. Do you know somebody might help find the money? He said, yeah, I know somebody. This person worked for two years, had half the money, so we thought we'd make a half-hour film and try and sell it to TV. And three weeks before we were supposed to start shooting, I got a telephone call. A man said, hi, I hear you're trying to make a film. You know, I put money into films. Why don't we meet? We met. He'd never seen any of my plays. He said, you know, I give money on the basis of person, whether I like the person. I like you. Here's the money. <laughs> so, 
he doesn't make films. No, he doesn't make films. Anymore. That was one. That was enough. Yes. No, he made quite a few films on that basis. No, films are wonderful. I, it, it is uh, great fun uh, to make a movie, and the editing is fun. I mean, it, it's great fun. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, uh, so it's it, it's irresistible. It just takes an awful lot of money, and you're talking about you're dealing with money all the time. You're dealing with people who are obsessed with money. Uh, and rightly, they should be, because it means you're spending millions of dollars. Uh, but uh, it does uh, create a certain atmosphere. Yeah. But then uh, they're on you more about artistic decisions, I would imagine. In my experience, no. No? No, no. They only wanted it to be a one hour and 55 minutes. Fit on TV. <laughs> they didn't care about anything else. Uh, but uh, no, I, I, I didn't find that. It just, uh, in the air, there's great dollar signs. Yeah. But I mean, gosh, doing a musical now, there are dollar signs in the air too, you know? Any other questions? Uh, I should thank uh, Jack Garfine and the Samuel Beckett Theater for giving us the space, and Lee and Theater Row, who helped arrange it and also urge you to go see Miss Universal Happiness and The Mystery of Edwin Drood this summer, which these men are directing. Thank you all for coming, and thank you. Both. Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members. Visit us on the web at www.ssdc.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at American Theatre Wing dot org.